The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Today on Radical Personal Finance, we have live Q&A. Starts right now. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I'm your host. Thank you for being with me. Today, we have a live Q&A that's about as live as we can get, and I'm doing an intro with guys hanging on the line. I know we're going to talk about stealth wealth, refinancing a mortgage, investing in tax efficiency, and how to handle money as a couple. Now, where we go from there, I have no idea. Thank you all for being with me today. Uh, on Fridays, well, I'm recording this on a Thursday, but on Fridays generally we would do a Q&A show. And at this point in time, one of my major intentions going forward with the show is to do this Q&A show once a week. If you would like to participate in a Q&A show, this is probably your most direct way to ask a question. I still want sometimes uh, intend to do Q&A where I'm answering your email questions, but a lot of times what happens is they'll become so much work and they get to be so long and I got to compose this 82-minute answer <laughs> to the email. It's a little overwhelming. So I love doing the live Q&A because it allows me just to have a conversation with people and it helps me to have a little bit of back and forth. If you would like to be on a show like this, the one that we're starting right now, uh, sign up to become a patron of the show, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Uh, changes being made to that website. We are simplifying the patronage levels. But going forward, basically, if you sign up with seven bucks a month or above, you get access to these Friday Q&A calls. Lots of benefits there. Thank you to the many of you who uh, who support the show there. So I've got a few guys hanging on the line here, and we're going to start with a question here from Alex. Uh, I've got a few questions lined up, and then who knows where we go. But Alex, welcome to the Friday Q&A show. Go and ask your question, please, and introduce yourself. Um, hi, thank you, Joshua. Uh, yeah, this is Alex. Um, uh, yeah, I just had a question about uh, stealth wealth. I am a big fan of the Tom Stanley books, as I know you are, and you've talked about on previous shows. Um, this isn't really an issue for my family yet, but I am kind of seeing, um, how it might be in the future. Just, I guess my question is how, what are some techniques and maybe even just more generally like a framework or philosophy for, um, how do you be more stealthy with your assets, um, as your assets grow, as your income grows over time, um, uh, just because, you know, there are different social circles you may be in, and you may want to uh, maintain that information asymmetry. Um, So I just want to get your thoughts and ideas on that. Yeah, I'll give you a few ideas. I don't see... So the, so the concept, for those who aren't familiar with the term, I don't know who coined the term, uh, but the idea is it's probably better to be rich and not have people know that you're rich 
than to be obviously rich. Generally, and there are a variety of different reasons for it. Uh, but if you, if everyone knows that you're rich, you're going to have to deal with the outcome of that. You're going to have to deal with some of the pleasant things, but also some of the unpleasant things. You're going to be solicited for more money. You're going to be solicited for more charitable donations. You could become a target of envy. Um, you might have uh, an Occupy West Palm Beach uh, protest parked outside your house, saying, "Hey, you're rich. Um, you're the one percent, and you know we are the ninety nine percent." This right now, I mean, the U.S. American culture, it's not too big of a deal, although the political rhetoric as, as things stand in February 2016 is changing. Uh, and as the political climate changes going forward, this could be more important. Uh, but the idea is if nobody knows that you're rich, then you don't have to deal with some of those negative repercussions and you can just simply sit back and enjoy the outcome of your wealth. There is a point in time at which it's going to be relatively obvious that you at least have a high income. Certain professions, uh, if you're a physician or an attorney or a corporate executive, certain professions you're going to know that there's a that, that you have a high income. If you are an executive at a publicly traded company, your compensation is going to be a matter of public record as a component of your uh, company's tax filings and uh, disclosure filings with the SEC. If you work in many governmental positions, people will know your income. Uh, but many of us, especially those of us who are entrepreneurs, will be able to work in a situation where we don't have to disclose it. So what you find is many times people who are truly wealthy find it more advantageous not to tell anybody. I love to see the newspaper stories of um, the, the, the old man or the old lady that dies and everyone thought they were broke but in reality they had millions and millions of dollars worth of stock. And if you can maintain – the comforts and benefits of wealth while also maintaining a little bit of anonymity, I think it can really open up a lot of opportunities to you. So simplistically speaking, uh, I think it starts with just not talking a lot about your private affairs. Now, this is a rule that I break uh, on the show uh, and I do it because I figure somebody has to kind of break some of the barriers and talk about things. But unless you're selling something related to wealth – or, or making money, there's almost no reason to ever talk about your wealth. There's no reason to talk about how much money you have. Uh, and that's why one of my litmus tests for people who are suspect is when they're leading with lifestyle. Uh, I've, I've, after the, I did a show on it recently, but after I, I watch on Instagram and I, I always follow the, the stock traders and things. And basically every other post is here's my Lamborghini. Here am I, um, extolling the benefits of my lifestyle. Now, is it legitimate? It could be. But the only reason that's of benefit to them is that it's establishing them as an expert in the eyes of their uh, of their customers. So you may want to convey some sort of wealth status as part of your credentials to practice a certain type of business. Uh, you may need to send forth some, forth some of those social triggers and social cues. You may need to, uh, if you're an attorney, you may need to wear a suit that fits you properly and looks great and drive a BMW so people think you're successful. Um, that certainly has its case. But if you don't have to do that, then there's really little reason to do it. So simplistically, choose carefully. Don't talk about your business. Um, drive a car that's moderate. Um, simple example, you talk about Tom Stanley. Tom Stanley uh, would discuss about the fact that he would drive a Toyota 4Runner. You could get a top-of-the-line Toyota 4Runner that's incredibly luxurious, leather, automatic, everything, and nobody will look at it twice. It just blends in. Uh, same thing with many SUVs. It blends in, but it's incredibly comfortable. Uh, so 
taking care of the cars that you drive, taking care of the uh, taking care of the house that you that you live in. What you see in in my ob- observation, you see almost a difference depending on different levels of wealth. At the uber wealthy, you usually don't ever see the houses. Uh, the houses are locked behind gates. They're on a private island. Uh, you never will get near the house to see it. And that can be a good strategy. If you're living in a place where you're out in the country and you want to build a giant, beautiful house, you might have enough acreage around you where it's not really, really seen. Uh, so that can work. Or a lot of times you can deploy that wealth in a way that doesn't look obviously uh, flashy but yet gives you a huge lifestyle. Uh, I remember the first time I went to uh, – I've only been there one time. But I went to Martha's Vineyard one time and I didn't know much about Martha's Vineyard. I was there as a component of a trip traveling with somebody who was staying with some wealthy people who lived on Martha's Vineyard. And I remember my first impression of the place was like, this place is a dump. <laughs> I mean it's nice but it's not all that nice. It's not beautifully flashy. So the people there were exercising a lot of just the benefits of the lifestyle without putting things on obviously from the outside. A couple ideas. Uh, you can enjoy wealth, the benefits of wealth, without flashy things. So you can, in your home, have paintings that are beautiful and that are very well uh, that, that are that give you satisfaction. But that's not obvious to the external world. You can uh, example of that. I remember uh, I mentioned on the story, which uh, in, on the show one time I went and had dinner with a guy who was formerly the richest man in the world, and we're sitting in this in his dining room, and he's got some paintings on the on the wall. I'm not an, an art aficionado. But one of them he starts telling me about, and I think I could be mistaken in my memory, but it was worth like something like $13 million. Like it's just this, this 300-year-old painting. I'm sitting there saying, how on earth do you just have this sitting on the wall? Well, an uneducated consumer from the outside, I didn't have a clue of what the value was. So you can enjoy the fruits of your wealth living in a modest-sized home, but furnish it luxuriously. Uh, make sure that you have the best bed. Make sure that you have uh, the the things that are that are um, around you that you value the most. Those things are expensive, and they're a way for you to enjoy the fruit of of, of your wealth personally without uh, without um, displaying it to the world around. Now, a couple of other practical ideas: um, maintain the privacy of your uh, of your business dealings through the use of appropriate entities. This idea is bandied about probably more than it should be based upon people who are selling, you know, usually attorneys who want to sell their services out. But you can go ahead and own your property in a blind trust. You can run a business in a blind corporation uh, where it's just called, you know, XYZ Holdings and somebody's going to search for Joshua Sheets and they're not going to find XYZ Holdings. You can do those things. You can. Own your car in an entity uh, so that uh, if you're going to have this classic car collection, it's not necessarily traced to you. You can use an attorney um, as a cutout uh, between the ownership of the property, the negotiation of the deal, so that you can go ahead and as your wealth grows, you may want to do more of those things to maintain your anonymity and your privacy. Nobody needs to know everything that you're doing. Uh, so, But at, at the early stages, there's not um, too much I don't know. You don't need to worry too much about it. But as things grow, you can uh, you can plan for that uh, for that circumstance. But ultimately, just don't talk about it. And I think that if you look at the way the wealthy people handle their money, a lot of times the greatest pleasure comes from those things that aren't visible. Uh, so there's no reason in the world why your what people perceive to be your lifestyle should ever 
that they should ever actually know what your lifestyle is. And if you're building wealth efficiently, that's probably going to be the case. Uh, you may be earning a high income, but living at a moderate lifestyle, that's, when, that's what's going to allow you to be wealthy. And so those same skills that you practice when you are becoming wealthy are going to permit you to, to remain wealthy. Um, would you like to ask a follow-up question, Alex? Did that touch on a little bit of, of what you wanted to talk about? Um, yeah, that, that helps a lot. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I guess, uh, the, I guess my follow-up was kind of in the back of my head. I was also thinking, you know, you touched on it a little bit as like, how do you enjoy, you know, what you're creating and kind of the blessings that you have at the same time, you know, as, you know, making sure other people don't see that. And I guess that's, that's kind of an art. It sounds like you have to kind of, you know, look at things bit by bit and kind of uh, deal with it as as it becomes necessary. Each person will have something that they value more than than something else. Uh, so for one person, it, what they value might be flashy cars. Um, for me, I don't value. I wouldn't value the ownership of flashy cars. But how I would enjoy spending money on cars is I would enjoy um, renting fast cars as a component of a driving course. So you can do that, and no one needs to know that you're spending a lot of money on your hobby of racing. Uh, or you can just go ahead and and create a racing team. I mean, you can do anything, and you can uh, uh, you can make it discreet. I don't think. I mean, you get to a point, there is a point of paranoia, I think, that's probably unhealthy. Uh, but you can certainly be a little bit discreet about the things that you do, and many people uh, won't know. A good example, I know somebody who is is quite wealthy, but they have just a simple fact of they don't park all their stuff at their house. They live in a very comfortable middle-class house and lifestyle, but you don't see their RV at the middle class, and they don't see their boat. You don't see all, the, you don't see all those things displayed at one time. Rather, at their place of business, they have a large warehouse associated with their place of business and they park the RV and the boat and the and the, the, the ski boat and the saltwater boat. They just park all that stuff there. And then when they want to use it, they can go and, and, and get it. And so nobody needs to know um, all of the toys that you have. Nobody needs to know all of those things. Any further Great. follow-up? Thank you. Cool. Awesome. All right. Let's go to James next. Go ahead, James. Uh, hi, Joshua. Um, I'm hoping that you can help me clear up sort of a, a confusion I have as to you know, what we're always told we should do versus the difficulty I'm having putting it into practice. Now, I'll give you some numbers against the advice you just gave just to give you uh, some context. So I'm 45 years old, and uh, about 12 years ago, I started really contributing to my um, 401k at work such that I've got about 366000 in that. But then I've also been trying to save outside of that, so I've got about four hundred thousand of uh, in those accounts, a mix of a Roth IRA and and then the rest of it twenty seven thousand in a Roth. The rest is in taxable accounts. And um, you know, you're always told on the one hand you should keep anything that generates dividends or you know taxable events. You should keep those in tax advantaged accounts, and you should avoid taxable events in your non tax advantaged accounts. But I guess. What I'm confused about is they also say, well, you should you know, buy low and sell high, goes the cliche. But then if you feel like you have an opportunity to do that, that entails selling something you've made a profit on and then presumably buying something that you think is you know, at a good valuation. And so do I really need to try that hard to avoid these taxable events? You know, one time I had way more individual stocks than I was comfortable with. And I just wanted to get rid of them, so I sold those at a profit. And indeed, I got a big tax bill of like nine thousand dollars. I actually had to sell some stocks to to pay the tax bill. 
but if in general I can absorb the tax hit that's coming, do I really need to you know, not have things that are fixed income, even if I feel like they're giving me a better opportunity at the time than just something that would appreciate you know, you know, through capital appreciation? So I guess I'm very confused as to what the rule is in terms of best practices, what, that really, what they really are in the real world. What is your generalized investment strategy uh, or approach? Um, well, it's, it's sort of in flux. I've been listening to, to David Stein and trying to do sort of a, you know, an asset class-based thing where I'm mainly in indexes and just try to kind of move based on trends in the economy and, and valuations. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I'm headed. Okay. Well, I guess let's start with the obvious thing that a lot of times we forget. Um, if you owe tax, that means you've made money. And sometimes it's better to sell the investment and pay the tax and lock in the money that you made uh, as gains than it is to just simply continue on uh, recognizing that uh, just, to just, just to stay the course because you don't want to pay the tax. So in one sense – and this is, this is very difficult to me uh, for me personally because I'm so um, extreme in my own personal opinions. It's very difficult for me to want to pay tax. Uh, but I'll tell you just what I often tell myself. I always just remember – I think it was Jim Rohn who would talk about it. I love Jim Rohn. And he would always say, be grateful and be thankful when you sit down and fill out your tax returns because uh, uh, you can be grateful that you're making money. And if you're paying more tax, you're making more money. Uh, easy in theory to think about hard in practice, at least for me. Uh, to put into practice. So paying tax is not always bad. The key, I think, is to calculate the built-in tax liability that you face and consider consider the transaction in light of that. If you have a very – let's say that you have a very low basis in a single stock. Um, so you, you bought the stock at $2 a share. Um, you have a lot of money built uh, – of total – many, many shares built up and now the, the, the shares are worth $10. Ignore dividends. You've got a lot of capital gains set there. You've got to factor in the cost of the tax into your planning uh, because if you sell it – if you sell it, you're going to pay the tax, and so you've got to factor in: Can I even if paying with paying the tax, can I then replace this with something better, something that I can beat it? So what I'm trying to emphasize is: start with the investment decisions first, not with the tax decisions. Once you've made the investment decisions or you've laid out your investment strategy, then look at the tax perspective and say: Is there a way that I can structure this deal in the most advantageous way possible? And that's where the idea of different accounts um, comes in. The key about qualified versus non-qualified uh, accounts, the biggest benefit of a non-qualified account such as a 401k is the fact that it allows you to defer the taxation on the upfront contribution. You earn money, you put money in the account, and you don't pay income tax in that year. If you don't have a high need for that deferral, let's say that your income was uh, – let's say that your income was relatively low uh, and your – so therefore, the value of the upfront deferral on the tax wasn't very high. I'm convinced in some cases it would be better not to hold that asset in the 401k. It would be better to hold the asset, especially if you're working with single stocks and you have a, or a long-term capital gain asset of some kind. It'd be better to go ahead and just own that under long-term capital gains rates as things stay today, because the long-term capital gains rates are um, are, are lower. Uh, if if someone's in a, a 
a five or ten percent um, effective tax bracket, uh, then there's not a huge savings of going ahead and taking that money out as income. Now, if somebody's in a forty percent effect, you know, thirty five. 40% effective tax bracket and they can defer that tax for the future now it 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 it's a different scenario so i'm not sure how to answer it more precisely than that just to say that you start with the investment outcome and the investment strategy that you're trying to build and then you look at where you're going to locate the assets so there's no reason if you're going to own a capital gains asset long-term capital gain type property then yes that if if your if your investment plan says 50% of my uh portfolio is going to be in long-term capital gain property and 50% is going to be in uh, income-producing property that's going to be taxed at ordinary income rates, then you should go ahead and shelter the income-producing property in the tax-qualified account and keep the long-term capital gains property in the non-qualified account. But you've got to start with the investment plan, not with the, um, not with the uh, uh, tax plan. Um, you want to ask a more specific question? Well, um, that basically makes sense to me. It gets a little bit more complicated in my mind because of how limited the options are inside the tax advantage account where I have the most opportunity to invest, that being the, the 401k, where you, the contribution limits are much higher, but you've got a menu of you know, very few choices. And so if you, if let's say there's some sort of closed-end um, income fund that is trading way below you know, net asset value that you can't get in a, a tax-deferred um account, then it could seem like a very good deal to, to purchase that even though it's income producing you know, outside of a tax advantage account. Or am I thinking about that the wrong way? No, you're, you're thinking about it correctly. You are simply identifying one of the major limitations of 401k plans. Uh, and that is one of the major problems. What's happened in our investment, the mainstream investment culture in the United States of America is that people that, that the idea of a 401k has become synonymous with investing. And so generally when people think, oh, I'm going to invest, they're wanting to say, I'm going to invest in a 401k rather than saying I'm going to invest through a 401k. And 401ks hold with them uh, unique restrictions and limitations based upon the fiduciary duty of the employer. And so the what, what we've done is we've effectively taken uh, – a very, so the pension systems in the United States used to be relatively stable. Um, the pension systems were run by investment professionals. They were run by uh, by. Well, I don't need to go, keep. I don't need to go deeper. They were run by investment professionals, and they were invested conservatively, safely, and they were run as trust accounts. Those systems have largely given way to self-directed approaches. And in the 401k system, your employer has a, a fiduciary duty um, to make sure the plan is well run. So there's a whole host of people who are working to help and who are working to provide options. But they have to be careful because they have some they have some level of fiduciary duty to they have a fiduciary duty to the employees to make sure that things are well taken care of. It doesn't mean that they can't uh, that they, they they're not the employer is not responsible for losses in the accounts, but they are responsible to make sure that there are appropriate uh, suitable investment plans op- offered. And so, in order to steer clear of the liability, generally the four hundred one k options are going to be mainstream vanilla approaches. Uh, you in in a large organization. You, you never get fired for not taking a risk, and that's basically the way it works. So in a bureaucracy, most people, whether it's large companies or large government organizations, you don't get fired if you do the safe route. Uh, what's the old saying go? You, no one ever got fired for choosing IBM, right? 
Same thing happens in investment planning. So we want mainstream, uh, very, very vanilla uh, fund options, and you need to, need to have a limited menu of them. So is that helpful for the individual participants? Ah, maybe. Um, sure, it is. But what it means is if you want to take more control, the 401k is going to be your most difficult place to do it unless you're doing it within a self-directed 401k for your own company. So what I would encourage you is in many investment plans, you might have some amount of your portfolio that you want to have with mainstream approaches. And with other investment plans, you might want to have other options that are less mainstream. And so you've got to locate those investment options appropriately. The best example, uh, the guy who taught me my Series 6 class was a great guy. He, he's done everything in the securities business. Awesome guy. But he, he always just told me, he's like, I keep some of my portfolio always just in an S&P 500 index fund. I don't look at it. I don't think about it. It's just basically my insurance portfolio. If I screw everything up and I lose all of my fun stuff, at least I've got this and it's, and it's there for me. So if your investment plan has you using a core portfolio uh, and almost an insurance plan, then look and see, does the 401k match that? Um, if not, if your 401k has really bad options, then look at the match, say, is it worth it? And maybe you just funnel money into it uh, up to the match and you do your other investments elsewhere. Uh, but I don't know that I can get any more um, specific than that without um, digging over into the to, into the world of uh, like actually doing a financial plan. Uh, but just look right. to see – look at it objectively and recognize the 401k plans do have significant limitations. They also have significant benefits, and you'll have to judge how important those things are to you. Go. Okay, thank you. That's, that's helpful. I'll probably have to listen to that answer again to let everything <laughs> sink in. But uh, Good. Well, I hope it was coherent. <laughs> and feel free, to, yeah, feel free to comment on the blog post, and maybe there's some other people that have ideas that will be more helpful to you. All right, Kevin, you're next. Go ahead. Hey, Joshua. Thanks. So, um, Obviously, you're a type A, passionate. I think. Hey, Kevin, hang on. How... Hey, Kevin, hang on one second. You're, you're breaking up a little bit. I'm going to go on to. Okay. Um, I'm going to go on to Lee, and we'll come back to you. Try to get yourself a better signal on your phone call. Lee, go ahead with your question, please. Okay. Yes. Um, so, hi. Uh, first of all, hi, Joshua. Thanks for uh, taking my question here. I, uh, so I own my own home, and it's financed by a uh, HELOC, Home Equity Line of Credit. Uh, the reason it went that way is I had trouble getting a traditional mortgage because of a low-income record. Uh, about two years prior, I graduated from college, and uh, tax return history didn't, uh, wasn't enough. I didn't have a full-time income, so let's um, manage to get it financed through a HELOC. So on one side, I really love the uh, flexibility of it. Um, I feel like I'm disciplined enough to make a... Uh, a large enough payment, even though the interest is all that's required. Um, but I do like the fact uh, that I can make a lower payment uh, in a certain month if I need to, and uh, there's no penalty for that, as long as I keep paying the interest on it. But at the same time, I don't feel that comfortable with my interest rate risk. Um, the HELOC is at 4% now, but it will adjust um, if the rates go higher. So I um, now, at this point in time, I have enough of income history to qualify for a mortgage. Um, at least that's my, I'm pretty sure I have about three years of, of full-time income tax returns. So my question is, uh, what things should I be considering when I think about refinancing from my HELOC to a, say, a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage? It's a great question. The HELOC, is it on the house that you're living in or is it on another property? It's on my house. So 
it's based upon that you were explain to me why you were able to qualify for a HELOC when you weren't able to qualify for a conventionally amortizing mortgage. You know, I am not totally sure. I got it through my local bank branch. Um, and I'm not sure if it was a different underwriting department, um, but the local bank branch knew me and knew the family. Um, and I kind of think that that's part of why it went through. And it was and on it a is, low, the, the ratio of the loan to the value of the house was, was relatively low. You put cash down? Put cash down, uh, it assessed that at a little bit higher than the purchase price was. So my loan price was 80%. Okay. Interesting. Uh, it's an interesting scenario. Um, do you, are you, do you know the actual terms of the interest rate adjustment? I do not. I realize I should, but I don't at this point. It's all right. Most, it's, it's, it's not easy to figure out. So definitely the HELOC – and real quick, a couple, another follow-up question. You have the option on the HELOC. You're required to pay a, an interest payment each month uh, or you can forego a payment. How, what are the terms of the payments? I'm required to pay um, interest and it's a 4% now. Um, so it's fairly low. It's like 450 475 a month. Um, so I'm required to pay that every month. And I probably could even pull money out of the HELOC and then make a payment back into it. Uh, probably not too many times. But How much are you normally paying into the HELOC? 800 If you continue to pay it at that rate, how quickly will the loan be paid off? Oh, boy. It's been long enough since I ran those numbers. I'm thinking it's going to be in the range of 15, no, it's probably a little more than that, uh, years, 18 to 20. Okay. And do you want to put extra money towards it, or uh, do you want to put extra money towards it? Yes, this is the place where I want to live, and I'm at the early part of my my amortization schedule, so I do want to put as much as I can toward it. And how much is the current balance on the loan? 135,000, something like that. Have you looked into the rates if you were to refinance it under a conventional, say, a 30-year mortgage? The last I checked, it was around the same percent, three, uh, four, four and a half. Okay, so if you can, if you refinance it at four percent under a thirty-year mortgage, your principal and interest payment should be about six hundred and forty-three dollars a month. Um, so uh, that would make sense if, let's see, if we dropped it to fifteen years, same interest rate, you would get an interest rate reduction. Uh, if you a fifteen-year mortgage is going to be a, a lower rate of interest than the thirty-year, uh, but if we dropped it to a fifteen-year and ran the numbers on that, the payment at a four percent interest rate would be nine hundred ninety-five dollars. So um, your 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 round numbers of you saying at fifteen to twenty years to, to pay the loan off, that sounds about right to me, uh, based upon just running that amortization schedule real quick in the calculator. Uh, if you plan to stay in the property, uh, it's hard for me to think that you're going to be beat. Uh, I mean, if you're, if you plan to stay in the property, this is where you want to live. Yeah, I would, I think I would, I would pursue refinancing it, uh, and try to get it on a, on a fixed rate mortgage to remove that interest rate risk. Now, in years past, I was vehemently opposed to variable interest rate mortgages, uh, and I was, it was a matter of philosophy. I said never borrow money on, an, on a variable rate mortgage. And since that time, as with most of the hardline stances I've taken on financial issues, I've realized that don't ever say never <laughs> because there are compelling reasons and times at which you should um, – which you should – 
make a different decision. And the key point that I had not understood when I made the statement of always buy it, borrow at a fixed rate interest rate, I had not fully understood how some variable rate mortgages adjusted and the limitations that were on them. So I'd encourage you to read the terms that are listed in your mortgage agreement and ask yourself the terms under which those things adjust and under which that specific mortgage adjusts. There are times at which those adjustments are limited. So it might say, based upon this external rate, we calculate the rate of the mortgage and it adjusts at this rate, uh, but it's not going to exceed a a change of 1% or whatever the number is. Or it might be more open-ended. So you want to read that mortgage document and really really understand the terms under which it uh, will adjust and calculate um, some likely scenarios. I think it's people, so we've been we've been in this low interest rate environment for a very long time. What's going to happen in the future with interest rates? I don't know. Uh, but the reason I'm pointing that out is because people have been concerned about mortgage rates changing for a very long time, and there have been people who have been much better off, um, much better off with uh, uh, a variable rate mortgage over the last few years by not than than if they'd gone ahead and gotten a fixed rate mortgage. Uh, so. Understand the rate of adjustment. I don't see any harm in in refinancing it on a uh, long, stable, amortizing mortgage. And you'll have to compare the amount of money that you have to pay for it versus the amortization schedule and ask yourself uh, that question. So the reason I ask you how long it would take to pay it off, let's say that you're looking at it and saying, hey, in five years, I could have this thing paid off because I actually want to put $1,500 a month towards it. uh, And and in that under that scenario, maybe I would just keep it as a HELOC, save the cost of refinancing, put as much money into it as possible. Uh, maybe you can pay it off quicker to the point where it's not worth uh, extending it out. Good book recommendation I would give to you is the author's name. He's going to be on the show. Uh, probably going to release the interview next week, but he's written a mortgage book. Uh, it's uh, the author's name is Casey Lewis. Uh, he's a mortgage consultant, and he's written an excellent book on mortgages. And I've got an interview with him already recorded that I'll probably be releasing in the next week or so. When you see that interview go out, I'll link the book in the, the in the show notes today. Um, after I can't, I just can't pull the title off the top of my head. But when you see that interview, listen to it and check out his book. And he does a good job in that book of describing scenarios and giving you your outline of things to think about. Any follow-up question on that? Um, I, I have the option on the HELOC to convert it to a fixed rate if it's only a 15-year. So I guess my, my current thought is keep it in the HELOC as long as possible until it's obvious that the interest rates are rising. At that point, do something. So I think that sounds like do, yeah. Does it allow you to convert it at a fixed rate? Um, does it allow you to convert it at a fixed rate uh, uh, that's stated in the document, or is it based upon a fixed rate at the time of conversion? The rate hike. I would take a hike. It's four percent now, and at the time that I asked, I would take a percent and a half hit, so I could put it at a fixed fifteen-year for five and a half percent. Shop the mortgage market. That's what I would say. Read read the document carefully and shop the mortgage market locally. Uh, maybe grab a couple of online people. I don't know what what the what's the the big one that um, Quicken Loans or whatever the guys that advertise all over. Try a couple of them and talk to a local mortgage broker or two, and just understand your options. Try to get some realistic rates and run some math uh, and put some different scenarios in force. Uh, that would be how I would approach it. Uh, I wouldn't 
jump into it. It's an interesting scenario, and I would like personally, if I could have it, if I could have a fixed rate loan with with the old pick a payment option, uh, where you can choose to adjust the payment, I would like that. Uh, it doesn't put the same pressure on you to to pay. The, the, the balance down, but it also gives you a lot more flexibility and, and, and lowers my risk because I can choose the payment. Uh, but I, I, would in, I would definitely look into refinancing at, at this point in time and, and talk to some local professionals. Best I got for you, Lee. Maybe if other listeners have comments or questions, maybe you guys can hang out in the comments on today's show and, and help one another with some more uh, details. All right. Uh, next, let's go back to Kevin. Uh, you can go ahead and ask your question, please. Hey, Joshua. Sorry about that. No problem. So, Sounds good um, now. So I wanted to ask a more personal question, a less, less technical. Uh, you're obviously passionate, organized, Excel spreadsheet kind of guy with money. I think most of your listenership is. Um, so I wanted to see if you would speak to how you and your wife handle your personal finances together. Um, do you split up tasks, you know, doing taxes, paying bills? Do you handle it all? And if so, um, how do you all discuss big money decisions? I guess I'm kind of getting at what say does your wife have in it and how can we, you know, maybe balance things um, in a good way, you know, and, and maybe even uh, go into how y'all have uh, evolved over your years of marriage and how that might have changed. That's a good question. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, probably the thorniest things that face us. And, and one of the things that's so difficult in the world around us is we have very competing philosophies. And this, the answer to how people will handle this question is very much influenced based upon worldview. So I'll answer the question very directly, very straightforward, and I'll tell you exactly what we do uh, and, and what we have found to be helpful in, in that. Uh, but I do want to caveat that this is the way that people will handle it is based upon worldview. And in the context of marriage, many people ha- struggle with, with, with answering the question. And you have to settle the question of how is, is marriage a, a, a partnership of equals? Is marriage, or as I would use it, using language that I would use, is marriage a union of two people into one? Uh, in our modern world, uh, there is a, people generally have a problem with not being in a place of uh, – people have a problem with anything except an equal partnership. Uh, it's interesting. There was an interesting article that came out uh, in the New York Times this last week and surrounding Valentine's Day, and it was about uh, the culture of language and asking about, hey, within the context of language, how do we refer in this new uh, world that we live in with same-sex marriage being legal in the United States and in many um, modern countries around the world, uh, how do we deal with with cultural language? And the article was fascinating because it was talking about how, how we need to eliminate the words husband and wife. Uh, we also need to eliminate um, – uh, we need to eliminate because okay, how do you is husband the right word? Is why if you have two men that are in a legal marriage or two women, it's a very it, what do we call each other? In fact, there's even so far as in the article it referenced the discussion of partner A and partner B. Marriage certificates have been changed now to eliminate husband and wife, and they're using partner A and partner B. And, and the writer was commenting how. Some people, it's unfair to have the concept of partner A and partner B. So the reason that's important is the mainstream thought in of how to conduct relationships in our modern era is the, the idea of equality of function. 
And so the idea is we should split everything. And the, the, the normal advice that I uh, was given in the past and that I used to give was that you should try to conduct things in an equal manner uh, as partners in the decisions based upon uh, whoever had the functional uh, – whoever had a, a functional – advantage. And so the idea is that we should each have a 50-50 vote. We should sit down. We should talk about decisions, and we should make those decisions equally. Well, my wife and I tried that in the beginning of our marriage, and we generally didn't find that that worked very well. Uh, And I haven't found that it works very well uh, in my experience working with different couples. Now, each couple has to figure out how to apply it, but uh, for the first year, we would try to sit down, okay, we're going to do the budget, and we're going to decide everything together, and we're going to uh, we're gonna figure out um, who, you get this, and I get that, and you get a spending account of $200, and I get a spending account of $200, and we're going to try to do these things equally. And uh, we ultimately came to the conclusion based upon experience, uh, our own experience, that that wasn't working well. And there were a few reasons that it wasn't working. Uh, we're not equal in terms of we do different things. We're not equal in function. We're equal in status, and that's where I said worldview. In a Christian marriage, one of the things you see that the Bible teaches clearly is that husbands and wives, they come together to become one. And we are equal in status before God, but we're not equal in responsibility or in function. And as a husband, as a Christian, I am fully responsible for the outcome of my family. And that makes it very challenging uh, because it puts all the responsibility on me. Well, when you put responsibility, responsibility also needs to come with ability to make decisions and and, and to do things, uh, to, to make forward decisions and to to lead. The other challenge is, especially once my wife um, began to stay home with uh, the children, that puts her at a different function where she's no longer a wage-earning spouse. And this is one of the reasons why, if you study the the changes in our culture, it's one of the reasons why it's been so important to have a workforce made up of men and women. Because in the concept of our modern culture, this creates equality. Both spouses have their income and the way that many spouses handle that, we both work, you have your income, I have my income, we split the bills and we kind of do our own things. I don't believe that's an appropriate model for marriage. That may be just simply a partnership. And is it uh, enjoyable for those who are engaged in that scenario? Maybe so. Uh, um, I I can't say. uh, It's not something that I desire to be involved in. And so how I see my role is I am fully 100 – as the husband of of my household, I am fully 100% responsible for the health and well-being of my family. It is absolutely 100% my responsibility. And again, that comes down to what I believe to be a God-given responsibility. It's not my wife's responsibility to provide the income. It's my responsibility to make sure that our household's needs are maintained. That doesn't mean necessarily that she's not going to contribute to the income. That doesn't mean that I have to be the one who's doing all the work. That doesn't mean there aren't situations that can be difficult, but I am the one who's responsible, and she is not responsible. And the challenge that we came to to, to deal with was the fact that if you place responsibility on someone without giving them ability, then it causes an unfair strain. And so um, there was a book that I read when I was in uh, in high school, uh, and it's probably one of the most politically incorrect books um, you could find. It's, it's a book called Man of Steel and Velvet. The author was named uh, Dr. Aubrey Andelin, and he wrote in that book a, 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 um, a lesson that 
that struck me fully. It was called How to Handle Family Finances. And he laid out the problem, and again, this is within the context of traditional Christian marriage. He laid out the problem that that you face if you put the responsibility on your wife for her to be responsible for the spending decisions. And I think in in personal um, counseling and in discussions, I see this happen a lot of times in marriages where usually it's the men and we abdicate our responsibility to run the bills. We abdicate our responsibility to um, to take care of the details. And often what happens, especially if we have a stay-at-home wife, we say, well, you have time. So you run the budget, you run the finances, I'll earn the money. And, uh, and what this does is, especially if there's stress, it puts a stress on uh, on your family, where she's responsible for balancing the budget, and uh, I'm responsible for just like making the money. But the problem is, if the budget runs short, I'm not feeling the responsibility of that. I don't have the the ability to go ahead and make the decisions. So what we switched to is, is I went back years later, and I was just ref- as, after our first year of marriage, we were just reflecting on on what was uh, on what was working and what was not working. And I went back and I said, we, we've got to try something different because this idea of managing things equally is just simply not working. And I said, this, here's this book uh, that talks about the problems. I said, I'm going to take over all of the responsibility and all of the daily uh, financial controls of our household. Uh, I'm going to just take care of it. I'm going to take care of the stress. I'm going to take care of all of those things. And I'm going to fully take on the responsibility um, uh, for these decisions. And you don't have to worry about it. Um, you just tell me what what we need, what you need, and I'll make sure that you have it. And once we did that, it brought a sense of peace to our household that was really, really beneficial. Now, it also comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility. And here's where you have to seriously, carefully consider who's involved in the situation and who's involved in the relationship. When you have a marriage, it's a partnership of two people, and especially if you have a marriage uh, where normally it's it's a wife, uh, where if you have a wife who's choosing to stay at home, that puts her in a position of trust. Of, of trust, it puts her in a position of uh, of losing some of that autonomy. And that's an incredible trust that she places in her husband to to do that. And so you've got to make sure as a husband that you do not um, that you don't betray that trust. And so that's a responsibility that I take very, very seriously. And so there's some things that I think are important. Number one, it's a little easier for me that my wife is uh, using um, Christianese. My wife is a virtuous woman in that I, I don't fear for her uh, going out and just doing frivolous, foolish things with money. I fully have her, I'm fully confident in her. She is capable. She is thoughtful. She's trustworthy in every way. And so I don't at all fear for, uh, for her and for her decisions. Um, that helps a ton, and that's a challenge that many spouses struggle with. And and in those situations, if you have a husband that is blowing money on golf or or you know snowboarding, or you have a wife who is is blowing money on whatever her uh, interest is, that can be a real challenge, and you have to work that out within the context of of um, of a relationship. But the way that my wife and I uh, handle it is, I take all of the stress, all of the responsibility, and I make sure that she has an unlimited amount of money to spend. And so I work hard to make sure that everything that she needs for running the household, for the things that she usually buys and she usually spends, I make sure to I, I try to make sure that she has an unlimited amount of money to spend. I also try to make sure that she has enough money to where she can buy the things that she needs to buy without for her personally, without having to come to me and say, Hey, can I have can I have these things? Uh, and so that has helped tremendously in our household. 
Then from time to time, I sit down and say, here's where things are, give a reporting to her of where things are, how the income is coming in and how, um, and how, how the income is coming in and how we're, where we're at, how much we're spending, how the progress that we're making towards our goals. So that is how we have, have handled it. And since we made that adjustment where I, um, where I, and I always did kind of the, the basics of balancing the budget and things like that, but where I just took over full responsibility and didn't try to do this equal, we're going to sit down and decide um, you know, together what this budget category should be and what that budget category should be. It brought so much peace to our household and it resulted in a much better relationship between us. Now, the challenge that I always have is what to do in a public context. And I'm always a little bit careful about this scenario because this is one of those things where I can present that idea as some as something for people to consider and to, to look at how to work it out, but I don't actually know how to give advice on this subject in public. Um, I've worked in, in personal situations, and, and when you get into personal situations, um, what do you do when you have a, a spouse who is a frivolous spender? What do you do in when you have a situation where you have a um, a spouse who is uh, – what do you do when you have a drug addict or a drunk spouse or or somebody who's unfaithful? What do you do when you have a marriage that's um, that's falling apart? What do you do when you have people that are untrustworthy, that lie to each other and, and have uh, situations like that? So I find those things to be very, very – challenging and I do not know based upon limited life experience how to give public advice that should be applicable to other people. I know in private counseling and in discussions with friends and people who sought me out, then you can think about and you can get a little bit of sense of who the people are involved. Uh, but I don't know how to handle it on a public basis, which is why I don't talk a lot about it on the show and say, here's how you should handle your family's finances. Um, it also makes a big difference about um, somebody's uh, uh, worldview. Uh, that makes a huge difference. Uh, and that's an area where most people don't share my personal worldview. Uh, most people don't share a worldview of Christianity. And if they do share a worldview of Christianity, they don't usually share my own personal perspectives on it. I'm, I'm an un- I have unusual opinions on many of these things based upon the theology um, that I hold and the way that I read the Bible. So um, that's what we do. Uh, that has, has brought so much peace and, and to our household where my wife – and it's just been remarkable just to be able to see where she doesn't stress about money a, a, anymore. And some couples that I have um, worked with in doing that, it's brought tremendous peace to their marriages as well. But that is built upon the first thing of having a, a trustworthy um, – that's built first upon being deserving of that kind of trust. And as a husband, I think it, it sobers me significantly to know that my wife is placing that amount of confidence in me. And it makes me rise up um, and, and want to her to have the best. She's the queen of my household. Uh, but that's, t- that's only within the context of somebody who's trustworthy. And I don't know – and that's – I would not necessarily apply that and I wouldn't know how to apply that in situations where people are working with relationships where they're not trustworthy. And it's a point where at this point I don't give public advice on that si- system because I don't know how to uh, – I don't know how to give it. I don't know how to properly protect the interests of people involved uh, without uh, being very, very careful um, in those ways. So – that's my answer. Um, what do you think? Is that what you were looking for? You have a follow-up question on that? No, that's great, Joshua. I agree with you 100%, and we've kind of had the same journey, and we've landed at the same place, and we've found a lot of peace in that. So thank you. Yeah. I'll tell you one story, and this is a personal story. 
again, um, each of us has to figure it out within the context of our own relationships. And this is the place where, at, I, although I talk about public financial advice being needing to be applied practically, this is an area where I don't think that. Uh, you, I mean, you need you need good private counseling and, and good, uh, you know, and people need good marriage counseling. They need to meet with a pastor. They need to pe- meet with somebody, an external person who's able to um, who's able to help. But I'll tell you this: um, a while ago, I had a relationship. Uh, excuse me, I had conversations with just some some friends of uh, friends of our family, and uh, we this couple was going through tremendous stress, tremendous financial stress. It was a combination of a significant decrease of income uh, mixed with um, tremendous uh, – with a difficult phase in life with young children, mixed with a lot of debt and a struggling business, and they were under tremendous stress. And they had been working for years to try to. They'd been working for years to try to, um, uh, to to try to figure out how how to fix this problem, and they were very very frustrated because they were trying to to fix this like we're going to do everything equal. So the husband was. Uh, he had the most income potential due to his occupation, but he was trying to go to work and get home real quick um, to take care of the kids. And then the wife was working at this other side job, and she was going to um, to uh, she she was going and, and trying to earn a little bit of money here. But it was stressful because he had more income opportunity, but she was the one who was managing the budget and the the. And she, because she was caring for the children, she didn't have the ability to go out and say, okay, we're going to go and and I'm going to work lots of extra hours. She had to take care of, of the kids. And so we sat down with them and I just listened to them for a while. And um, I said, try this. Uh, and again, this is trustworthy people. There's no, um, there's no infidelity in the relationship. It's just difficult. I said to the husband, I said, you need to take over full responsibility for the money. And I said to the wife, I said, I would recommend that you give him full responsibility. It's not your job to worry. It's not your job to make the bills. And I said, it's, it's his job and it's his responsibility. Now, cutting to the chase, they did it. And they weren't sure about it when they did it. But I watched those people, I watched them blossom in just an incredible way where the husband stepped up and took responsibility for his household. And I watched that sense of meaning, of laying down his life for his family, just make tremendous progress in his uh, – I mean I just watched him blossom. And I've seen uh, the wife also blossom and her respect for her husband has increased tremendously. And both of them have, in retrospect, given to me um, uh, just a positive report and said, this has made a huge difference in our lives. Um, the last comment I wanted to make on it, though, you, you said something about, um, about love. And you said about how do we make big financial decisions. When I signed up to be married to my wife, I agreed to love her for, wife, for life no matter what, which means practically speaking, I must never make a decision without her being involved in it. And every decision that we make that we make has to have her best interest at heart. And so practically speaking, I am it's is there an op- is there a potential or a possibility that at some point I need to leave lead my family in a decision that um, she doesn't agree with? I think there's a possibility there. However, I'm not will I've never done that. And I'm not willing to start doing it today. 
that we are one and her interests are more important than my interests. And that's where it's it, where it so starts with worldview. Um, if you have a perspective of relationship where the idea is what can I get, then I, I personally don't see how marriage works in that context. But when marriage is based upon what can I give and how can I sacrificially love my spouse, then to me, I see how that works. And so um, – it's my job to lay down my life for my wife and to love her, and I would I am not about to make any major um, financial decision um, without her being in complete agreement. I would think that that to be foolish, and so I involve her very very practically. In I talk about the things that I'm doing uh, with my business. I talk to her about all my business decisions. If we have any significant expense, we talk to one another, and I don't know what significant expense is, maybe a hundred dollars, but like we talk about it. Um, what do we need? I make sure that. And it's my job first and foremost to make sure that my family has what we need before I deal with any of my personal stuff. And so we talk extensively about it. And even as we go forward in business decisions and things like that, I don't make any major uh, decision without her being um, aware of it because uh, her intuition, her wisdom, her judgment is one of the most valuable tools that I have because she knows me and she knows um, – reality. Uh, so, and she's, and thankfully with her background, she's actually very well equipped um, to be just a tremendous um, influence for good. So I do, so I don't make any decision uh, whatsoever uh, with any major decision, any major financial decision without her being involved, involved and in agreement with that. Uh, and I don't intend to start. Um, however, I shoulder fully all of the stress of the day-to-day, the business, the bills, and all those things, and I make sure that she has everything that she needs to handle her aspects without um, without handling the stress of how much income is coming in this month, month and all of that. So I hope uh, – wow, I don't know. I mean that's, a, that's one of the thorniest um, uh, issues in our modern culture, uh, but hopefully that's a useful answer uh, to you. Any other questions or follow-up? Any response to any of these things uh, before I end the call today? Does anybody else on the call have any input or advice or experiences on any of the subjects that we've covered that you would like to share? I'll give you an opportunity here to do that. Cool. Well, thank you all so much for calling in. I appreciate your involvement uh, in these Q and A calls. I intend to do um, I intend to do do many more of these calls. In the future, um, I'll just share a couple things. Um, so these Friday Q and A calls, I really enjoy doing them. Um, I don't claim to have all the answers, and so I invite you if you are listening to this in the podcast feed and you have some advice or suggestions for the listeners um, on today's show, uh, please come by the blog post for today's show and comment. And if you asked a question, I encourage you to watch that, and maybe listeners can provide recommendations for one another. Uh, I'm just one guy. I don't have all the answers. I'm a normal dude, just like everyone else. I have a little bit of experience, um, but I have all of my own questions, all my own things that I'm looking to work towards. And what my hope is that out of the radical personal finance community, we can build a more, uh, useful community of people encouraging one another. We've seen that happen a lot in the Facebook group uh, with people just giving ideas and inspiration. Um, I don't think it's any of our responsibility to make another person's decisions for them. Uh, It's only our responsibility to give ideas and and, and resources and things that would be helpful. And hopefully I have uh, succeeded in doing that today. 
If you in the future would like to be able to have a call answered on a show like this, feel free to sign up and become a patron supporter of the show. Uh, go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. You will have access to the uh, to the call-in number and the times as they are scheduled and you'll be able to call in and I welcome your comments. I welcome your questions on a show like this. So again, all the details of that can be found at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Take the information that you've ha- take, uh, had on this show today. Um, take it. Study it out. If you've got additional comments or uh, ideas, feel free to post those in the show notes. I will link to the books I mentioned, the book by Casey Lewis on mortgages. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll link to Man of Steel and Velvet um, in the notes for today's show. Uh, and I think that's it. Thank you all so much for listening. Be back with you soon. Mm-hmm.